You're listening to the Fooled by the Root podcast. I'm so glad you're here to listen in on this episode with the beautiful Barbara Sumner, author of the book Tree of Strangers. Barbara's book is such a stunning piece of work. She writes lyrically with such beautiful detail that you are totally immersed in her story. She is also a filmmaker, a mother, an advocate, to name a few things. (laughs) Our conversation covered lots of hot-button issues. She is very outspoken in her views on adoption language and what she feels needs to change with the laws for those of us that are adopted people, i.e. non-consenting persons. I hope that you get as much out of this episode as I did. Hello, everyone. This is Heidi Marble, your host. To say I'm excited is an understatement. My beautiful friend, Mira Rybin, made me aware of Barbara Sumner's book, Tree of Strangers, and also her advocacy. This book, it haunted me. It kept me up at night. Um, It gave me hope. It's absolutely beautiful. So please read it if you have not. Barbara, I'm so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thank you. And I am going to read your bio and try not to mess up the Kiwi name. (laughs) So we'll see how it goes. Barbara has worked in film and journalism. She manages Cloud South Pictures with her husband, Tom Burstein. In 2009, This Way of Life, their feature documentary about a family living simply in the Ruahini Ranges, won the Berlin All Generation Jury Prize at the Berlin Film Festival. It was shortlisted for an Oscar and won awards at the film festivals around the world. In 2020, Barbara has a master's in creative writing, Victoria University of Wellington. She is currently a PhD candidate studying adoption, third-party conception, and the creation of identity. Wow, Barbara. Well, I am so grateful you gave me permission to start by reading just a little blurb from your book. On page 20, I heard her voice for nine months, her heart beat, the rush of her blood and the click of her bones. A mother possesses you with herself and you are secure there. You make a snug cavern of her body, a nest or a burrow, and it is all yours. She shares everything with you, her nutrition and discomfort, her anguish and her joy, even her temperature. A scientist has described the connection between mother and utero child as like the roots of a tree. So Barbara, you have quite a story. Where would you like to start? (laughs) That impacted me so deeply. Yeah, the fact that we are all uh, part of our mothers, we carry them and, you know, they carry, when we're gone, they still carry us within them. And we still carry our mothers within us. I mean, we are our mothers and they are us. And that happens for every generation. So, yeah, I mean, the idea that we can separate a child from a mother, call that child a blank slate as if they're, and then move them, they are no more than a loaf of bread. I mean, it's it's a bizarre idea. And it's a 17th century idea. Uh, John Locke, I think, came up with it in the 17th century, the whole idea of the tabula rasa, the the blank slate. And it was flawed then and it's flawed now. 
Mm. Yeah, so true. One of the statements you made that I thought was really impactful, you said you are a child, not the child. Yes. Well, of course, Ooh, we are. that is a, yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's true, right? Because our adopters want their own child unless they're coming from a saviorism perspective. But, you know, we are the cure for infertility, as it were. And so we, but we are not the child they would have. As much as when we are removed and put into the arms of another mother that we are, um, that they are not the mother we are expecting, we are also not the child that they are, that their heart is longing for. So we are not the child. We are definitely a child. And then, of course, we quickly age out of being a child and yet adoption calls us children for our entire lives. We are always infantilized. We're always the adopted child, not an, not an adult. So when you went to, I mean, we're fast forwarding a lot, but let's talk about the discovery of your, your original mother. Tell, tell us that story, whatever you would like to say about that. Um, I don't, I know a lot of people understand what happened, but I think it would be meaningful to hear it from you. Well, I think one of the things with Tree of Strangers, my book, is that it's not a reunion book. And often adoption stories are reunion stories. And so it starts off with the possibility of reunion, of course, and the, the, way, in that I, the way I connected with my mother in 1983 when I was 23 and her immediate um, booking of a, of a flight. So she, she was living, I'm in New Zealand, she's in Madrid in Spain, and she immediately books a flight for the next day, two days later, I think, and gets on that plane to come to New Zealand and is killed because the plane crashes. So that, you know, glorious moment, it, uh, one, of the, one of the chapters in the book is called... Um, uh, the other Easter, maybe something like that, it talks about Easter and how you know she was alive and then she was dead. She was dead to me as a because of course when you are removed from your mother as a baby, it is as if your mother has died. So she was. It's called the opposite of Easter. She was dead to me, and then she was alive for just a few days, and then of course she is dead again. So that idea that. Um, that double that double death, I guess, is the thing that is as shocking as anything. To to have that moment, plus a lot of the other challenges that you faced, and to think that you've become an advocate to try to help change things in adoption because of your experiences. What else can you tell us about growing up? What was it like trying to fit into your family and? Maybe just explain, because a lot of us don't realize the impact until something happens to kind of wake us up. Yeah, it's true, right? That whole process of coming out of the fog is quite a slow, it's a slow process. And I don't know if we're ever completely there. I mean, I still get revelations all the time about mm. how I was and uh, beginning and understanding more and more what was done to me. But um I, I guess I describe it as I'm once had done all my DNA and found both my parents, I discovered I was Jewish, but I was brought up in a bare room Anglican home. So, you know, no books, no music, no art, 
no reverence for education, none of the things that I would naturally gravitate towards and have, have you know, included in my life as an adult. So it was a very um, quiet life, but I guess and I'm saying that in a nice way because really it was a very suppressed life. There was no room to argue. There was no, you were... So I was told, as as many are, that I was adopted at quite an at a at a young age, so that I don't remember being told. But we were never allowed to talk about it, so it was a no go, no go zone. You did not discuss it at all. Um, so you hold this information, but you can, where do you go with that? And so, of course, you live in a world of fantasy, because there's always that other possibility just over there. And it is a completely fantastical view of your mother. That is not necessarily anything like the truth. So, so well stated. I, <laughs> I have my notes here. And a word that really stands out as well is the disappeared. Yes. Can you define that, Barbara? Because I had not heard that until I saw stated by you? Well, I think we are the disappeared in two ways. We are disappeared from our the life that we should have, that we were destined to be in. We're disappeared from our extended family, our grandparents, our siblings, our aunts and uncles and cousins, and our entire, you know, ancestral line. But we're also disappeared from ourselves. You know, we we are, it's almost like we are two people. So we're this, for me, I was this person going about my life here when my real life was happening here and here. So I was working my way through life in a very um, uh, robotic way, I think. Yeah, it's, it's a way of coping for sure. You know, when you are a young person and you're making your life, you are... Even if you don't fit within your within your family, maybe you're a complete weirdo within your family, but that someone will always say, "Oh, you're like Great Aunt Mabel." Whatever, you know, you will. There will always be the fam. Your family will always find a way to include you within the envelope of who you are, of what their fa- their family culture and who they are. But if you're a completely different type of person to the family that adopts you, how do they make sense of that? How do they fit that in? You become, you know, and you start off as this perfect mute pre-verbal bundle, but what happens when you start to develop your own personality and they don't have anywhere to put that? And one of the things I like to, I do say about uh, adoption and loss is that adoption is made from loss. So the adopters have lost the child they would have had. Your mother loses the child she did have and you, the adopted person, lose everything. Yeah. There was a part in your book where you were talking about when you were trying to find your information and you were speaking with a social worker who was significantly younger than you, who had, you could hear him fumbling or her, I don't remember which, through your records that you didn't even have permission to see. Can you sink us into that scene? Because I think one of the things we want to do, Barbara, pulled by the root, is really educate people. I don't think people 
in large perspective, have their eyes open to the issues of what it is to be an adoptive person and not have access. Unless you experience an experience a loss of identity, you don't understand what it is because it's such a given that you fit within the not just the family you're in now, but the whole family story, the story of your family, the story of your history, the you know the ancestral stories that get passed down. We are human beings are storytellers. and what what are the stories we mainly tell? We tell family stories. And I mean, I do that now with my grandchildren. I find a photograph, you know, a couple of times now I've found a photograph of my mother and I can see where she looks like one of my grandchildren or one of my others and, and same with my father. And, and I'm always including them within the story. And I can see how they, how it embeds, they embed within the family and it embeds within them. So what do you do when you have no identity? And then you have access to these little threads. So in my case in this in New Zealand, it's going through the social welfare organization. And I've got this 20-year-old new graduate male social worker. And he's flicking through and he's saying, Oh no, I'm sorry, no, no, there's nothing here. No, there's no your father's name's not here. My father's name was there, as it turned out. Many years later, I found out. And had he told me that at that time, I could have found my father then before he died, but that wasn't able to. And I, they don't, the adoption is, is a one-hour seminar in social work. I don't know about where you are, but here it is. They don't, they don't understand because it's all adoption is from the perspective of adopters and the supposed right to have a family. And if you can't have a family, you can take somebody else's child to make your family, and that's perfectly fine. And so we never look at it from the perspective of the person who was adopted. And that's, I guess, what my activism is. I am, my advocacy is in bringing the perspective of the adopted person into the mainstream. Well, you know, you just sent me a link to a brilliant interview that, that you did, and I'll make sure that we include that in this podcast as well. But one of the things that really stood out like it, it felt like an arrow to the heart is when you said it's almost like property law. Yeah. yeah. Can you get into that a little bit more? Well, I can because I mean, I'm sure here in New Zealand, we have okay, not necessarily fabulous, but we have okay, we have welfare laws, uh, legislation. We have three different forms of welfare legislation in this country. When a child is unable to be cared for by their original family, those pieces of those bits of legislation kick in. And there are various things that happen to a child that's unable to be cared for. But adoption is not welfare. There are no checks once an adoption has happened because the law says you are as if the child, and that term as if is really important, of your adopters. So there is, if so. If adoption is not welfare, what actually is it? And when you start, when I started drilling down, because our main adoption law was put together in 1955, and I started to think, well, it's a piece of succession law. It is designed to uh, ensure that inheritance stays with legitimate heirs and not illegitimate heirs. So it's a way of men avoiding any consequence for their sexual behavior, while women 
are able to be punished for their behavior. And so it's also a piece of religious um, legislation. And it is the last um, piece of moral legislation in our country based on, on morality. So I was taken from my mother because she had sex outside of marriage. And so I am taken from my mother, not just for my childhood, but for my entire life, for the life of my children and my grandchildren and so on. We are all removed from our family tree forever because my mother had sex outside of marriage. So you can see how it works as property. It you And you we're trying to look at succession law in this country at the moment, but are they talking about adoption as part of succession law? No, they're not. And yet they should be because we should be able, a stepchild can inherit from uh, the step-parent and the natural parent. But if adopted people try and do that, they're considered to be ungrateful and double-dipping. Yeah, that's that's really, oh, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> you know, I also took a note here. It says experience is the architect of the brain. And I thought that was a great thing that you said, but experience is the architect of the brain. And you think about our experiences as adoptees from a very young age, that primal wound that's experienced and how the architecture of our brain changes. And I just want to detour just a little, Barbara, because you have this amazing creative element to you. And it's really interesting to me, the duality of that, because you were raised in, like you said, a very tamped down environment, but you're bursting into the world with writing and film. Can you tell us a little bit more about, is that your space where you feel the most peace and the most joy? Because it's heavy to carry all this. And I know my creative outlets always help. It's just a space to go and just breathe a little bit. Well, I also think I'm a late bloomer, as you know. So I'm, um, I do a lot of creative work. Obviously, as a writer, I've got a novel coming out in a in a year's time, and I'm doing my PhD, and I've got the other book, and I'm been making film. And yet, what that shows me is that, in the end, it is not nurture; it's nature. My entire natural family are like me, but my adopted family haven't done a creative thing ever it's not who they are they like to watch the rugby and that's about it so you know it's that idea that we are we are who we are and it's very but it's very difficult for adopted people to come into that natural self because we're constantly told that that natural self doesn't have value because it doesn't fit within the family culture that you're imported into So beautifully said. Another thing I was thinking about as well, Barbara, I have been fumbling through the terms in adoptee land and my podcast, there's no way I'm going back to edit all of them. But I would love for you to explain why you don't like to use certain terms. And I think it would be really interesting for you to shine a light on your thoughts about saying birth, mother, et cetera. Can you explain that part of of your advocacy? Because, Because I think it really is important. I think one of the things that I find is quite empowering for me is this idea of equality. So Hmm. if a non-adopted person does not call their mother, their birth mother, 
I'm not going to do that either. Why do we not put the emphasis on the qualifier onto the adopter? We can say the adopting mother rather than the um, rather than the birth mother being because we only we really only have one mother. So my mother and my adopting mother. And I don't use adoptee very often. I feel like it's reductive. I prefer to say adopted person. Um, I feel like that is more um, empowering uh, because to me, adoptee sounds too much like abductee. And it is true that I was abducted. All of us have been abducted. Wow, Barbara. (laughs) If, and of course, when you start going there, you start saying, well, if you know someone who has been abducted in a in a you know someone's come into the home and taken them away or often we hear about a situation where somebody has snuck into a maternity ward and abducted a baby and the huge fuss that goes around that and the need to return that child and adopted people it's the same for us you know it doesn't matter how it happens to the child to the newborn child it's all the same thing to the newborn child, the mother has died when they when they have been removed from them. Of course, if your born your your mother does die, and you're not an adopted person, you're surrounded by um, sympathy and empathy, and just and you grow up with that feeling that you've had this bad thing happen to you. But we have disenfranchised grief because we're not allowed to grieve for our mothers because it's believed that we're special or different. And we don't have grief for the loss of our mothers. Whereas if your mother had died, of course, it would be well, it's always well acknowledged. So we have different standards for us to non-adopted people. And that's something that I'm very keen on trying to break down in society to understand that the gaslighting that goes on around adoption is from the top down. It's from government, it's from churches, and of course, it's definitely um, uh, pushed by adopters. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Well, you've given me a lot to think about, Barbara. I would like to lean into your advocacy a little bit more into the work that you're going to be studying and surveys. Can you talk a little bit about data? One thing you pointed out I believe in the power of storytelling, but you said something the last time we talked, you said it's not enough just to tell your story. Mm. And I kind of huffed off thinking, well, I thought that was pretty good, but you're right. It's What do we do next? Because one of my go-tos is being a victim of what's happened to me. And I think that that, is, that happens a lot. And I wonder if you can help us walk through some of those complicated issues. You know, how do we become, deal with the pain of what's happened to us against our will, translate that pain into power, which you have clearly done. And it's moving from one space to another, Barbara, that so many people have difficulty with. So when I look at you, I go, you did it. I want to know how. (laughs) It's interesting, isn't it? The whole story thing, because we have to tell our stories. It's essential. Mm -hmm. And we are, as I said, we are all storytellers. But what next? And I think that what happens is we get caught in our stories. And 
we don't move beyond them. I know that I was so trapped in my story until I was able to write it down. And that came after having quite a lot of therapy. And once I wrote that, wrote down my story, I felt like I had some freedom from it. And that enabled me to move forward into understanding the broader issues of what society has done. And and I didn't, once I started to understand it more, I didn't see myself as such a victim of it. I, I began to see that I could have some um, power in this. And then now I've, and I'm, I think I've said, you know, I'm starting a PhD at 61, which is kind of amusing. That's for you. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, one of the parts of that is, so it's going, so it's going to be about adoption, third party conception and, uh, the manufacturing of identity. And one of the things I'm going to do in that is do a, a nationwide survey that's never been done. So here in New Zealand, we collect no data around adoption because we believe that it is no different, as if, you know, we are as if the child. So when a, a, an adopted person takes their own life, the coroner does not record that they're an adopted person. And yet we are four times more likely to take our own lives, you know, we uh, we self harm at twice the rate of, of, according to data out of the US. But we have no data here. We don't know any of that. We don't un- we don't know whether uh, people that discover that they have a heart condition late are adopted people. So they don't. That's a hereditary condition. We don't know whether they didn't know that and could could they have resolved it earlier. So these are the kinds of questions that I'll be asking and um, trying to get some answers for so that we can actually put some serious data around the consequences of adoption. We say adoption has no consequences, and yet adopted people keep saying, and their stories say it, but how do you get politicians to read masses of stories? And we only get change if we go to the top. So, But they will read data. So that's my that's my plan, one of my plans at the moment. Well, I just love the fire that you live, like just being able to go out and go for it because we need voices to be really pinpointed and provide data, whatever is going to, to move the needle. Barbara, is there anything else that you really want to talk about that you want um, adopted people to know out there? that are hurting because we are more susceptible to so many different mental illnesses, a lot of isolation, all of those things. What, what hope can you give to, to the hurting? It's it's bad. We are hurting. I mean, I get people send me stories all the time and, and Mm. while as, while we are, as diverse as the general population, we are as diverse as any, we're not even a group, we're really barely a community, we're incredibly diverse, and yet in our lived experiences, and yet our internal experiences are so similar. We all suffer Mm -hmm. from that lack of recognition, of lack of being heard, of um, disenfranchised grief, of having nowhere to take those emotions, of of hiding in plain sight because everything in our society says that adoption is no different to natural, to uh, bringing, being brought up in a natural family. And, of course, we're now transferring that into people conceived and 
um, commissioned using third-party providers. And we are repeating the same problems because we've never said very clearly that it, we've never been able to have a unified voice that says, this is not good enough. If you all in all the funding and all the, um, you know, any support that should be out there should be on family preservation. And then if family preservation because of some dysfunction is not possible, then we should look at something like guardianship because you don't have to be adopted to receive love. The only reason you have to be adopted is to is for your adopters to feel to play at being parents, to pretend that they are your parent, real parents. But unfortunately, you know, for from an adopter's perspective, you can't be both the cure for infertility and their natural child. So there's a lot of you know that that idea of uh, that fantasy, the family fantasy, the fictive family is very um, strong in our society. As for hope, I think keep all of us have to keep moving on our journeys. I mean, we're all doing it. We're all on this journey. And it's, I don't think we're ever done. And our children carry it as well. And they, you know, not as bad, but they become second generation survivors, what we call 2G survivors as well. Because I know that when I was a young parent and I had children very young, really to stop from killing myself, to be honest, to give myself some reason to live. Uh, I parented in a way that had I not been an adopted person, I don't think I would have parented like that. I was very, um, I made it a very tight unit. It was a very airless environment because I needed them to reassure me that I was um, not so much loved, but that I belonged to something. So we created this family unit that's still very tight. My oldest daughter's 40. You know, we're very tight as a family. We all live near each other and we are in, in and out of each other's houses all the time. And that's fabulous. But it's also, it puts a pressure on them that they haven't been able to maybe thrive in the directions that they wanted to or could have. So it's a it, there are generations of, of damage that happens from adoption. I don't think people consider that. I think often adopted people don't even really consider that. When you start to look at it, though, it is passed along in the way that we parent. Oh, Bart, this has been such an incredible interview. I, I think that so many people are going to learn so much, and I can't wait for people to read Tree of Strangers. And if it's okay with you, I would just like to read one more small thing before we go. This is what you said on page 44. With closed stranger adoption, you have no birth story, as if you exist by magic alone. But that day on the worn carpet in my lounge, the story of my birth rushed at me as if I had actually been there, as if my mother and I were one. I had never experienced that exact feeling again, but the story stayed with me. It began with a drizzle, a dark corridor, an image of my curtains, luminous as mist, a woman I knew was my mother stretched her arms toward a baby in a stranger's arms. The curtains were like wedding veils between them. I was then in an old graveyard and she was sitting in a white painted portico surrounded by mossy gravestones. She wore a coat that did not cover her belly. 
Her eyes were closed against the slant of an early winter sun. It gets me. First and foremost, it's beautiful. Just beautiful. The funny thing about that is that the house that I, before I knew where my mother had lived, um, before giving birth to me, which was she was incarcerated in a doctor's house, and I didn't know where that was. Uh, the house I live in now is two minutes from there. I sit in that portico all the time. Isn't that strange? And I didn't know that. I was just drawn to this place. Oh, my goodness. There's so many magical and mystical things. Barbara, it's been a gift to spend time with you. Thank you for fitting us into your busy schedule. And I am very glad to be connected with you. And, and I can't wait to see what's next. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.